Welcome to the Investor Coaching Show, a podcast to help you get an insider's view of the financial world and escape common investment traps. We look at the financial news of the day and help you make sense of it so you can relax about money. And here's your host, Paul Winkler. All right. Back here on the Investor Coaching Show, Paul Winkler talking the world of money and investing. Okay, so the uh, the by far most common investment choice that we see in 401ks, as I've said, our target date funds, you're going to retire in 2035, 2040, 2050, whatever. You just put all your money in here. You don't have to think about it. Just put it all here. And most of the money is, you know, you look at the different fund companies out there that have these things. And it's usually not a huge difference. They may have a difference, as I said earlier, with how they actually change the stock versus bond mix, how they actually glide down. They call it the glide path from stocks down to bonds as you get older. Now, when you get to retirement, typically they're going to have some stocks in there. And that is because we want to have, we want to have something that protects us from inflation. So it's really usually a really good idea to have something in equities, depending on the person's financial situation. If you're totally broke, that may not be a great idea, but uh, you want to have something there. So what happens is that we look at this and go, well, how much do they typically put when they're in the accumulation phase, when they have lots of stocks? What do I normally see? What I normally see is no more than 5 to 8 9% tops of the portfolio sitting in smaller companies. Well, in 20-year periods, all 20-year periods all the way through history, 83% of them, as I've said many times before, small companies have a higher return, have had a higher return than large companies. Well, hence, you're actually not holding much in there, so you're already taking away a lot of return potential. Then if you look at value versus growth, 96% of the time value does better than growth, and the disproportionate amount in growth companies because they're well-known companies. You know, you look at uh, like, and in some companies it's all over the place, but you know, like Vanguard, they use the, the total return, total stock market funds, excuse me, total stock market, total US, total international. And since they're weighted based on size, it's going to be very dominant in growth companies. But because most investors aren't aware of this stuff, it doesn't bother them. Then you look at what, what they're holding in, you know, international versus U.S., and usually it's way, way more U.S. Why? Because most people are familiar with U.S. versus international. Well, if you look at what you're overweighting, it's S&P 500 companies all the way. I mean, it's really big companies is what you're overweighting in these portfolios. So what I did is I was saying to Brian, one of the guys up in the Goodlessville office, who was a um, fellow nerd, and I said, Brian, I want you to go do some research for me. And I want you to look at the Magnificent Seven. No, I don't want you to watch an old Western movie. I want you to look at what everybody's talking about as the hot companies right now. You know, the Meta and, and Apple and NVIDIA and Tesla and Amazon and Microsoft and Alphabet. And, you know, those are the companies, those are the Magnificent Seven. And I just, I, I'm just curious. If you look at 500 companies in the S&P 500 and you look at the value of all of those companies in there, what percentage of that index is just those seven companies? What percentage? Because you'd think, well, it's seven five hundredths, right? 
maybe that would be good because you're not you know loading too much up on just a couple of companies about 30% about 30% of that S&P 500 ind index is just those seven companies mind blowing up duct tape around brain you've got to be kidding me and if you look at like these total stock market funds, a la the Vanguard and you know so on, companies that have that, they're they're the biggest one out there. It it right, it looks just like the S and P five hundred because you're hardly putting anything in the smaller companies in those portfolios. It's just the the weighting of that just is mind boggling. So then you look at the other thing that I like to look at is historically the S and P five hundred has a P.E. ratio of 16 to 1. They sell for $16 for every dollar of earnings because what I'm getting when I buy stocks, I'm getting the rights to the earnings. If you turn that over, 1 divided by 16, that is what's called the earnings yield. So the lower that bottom number, the lower the 16, if it goes to 10, I have a higher earnings yield than if that number is 20. So what happens is if those earnings come through as expected, my earnings yield is higher if that price is lower, because I'm paying less for the earnings, okay? Does that make sense? Hopefully. Now, you look at that and go, so what are these companies selling for, according to Morningstar? Because 16 is the historic average for the S&P 500. Would you believe Meta's at 35? 35. Uh, Apple, 32. NVIDIA, oh, just nothing. 213. $213 for every dollar of earnings. Tesla, 76. Amazon, they win, they win the prize. Amazon, 305. 305. Um, at Microsoft at 36 and Alphabet at 26. And you go, the lowest one was like Google. I, I mean, was just going to ask, Google has to be the lowest one. I mean, but you know, but that's hot. That's still not a bargain on the table waiting for somebody to pick it up. You think about well, true. that. So you look at this and what is driving this is like, oh, AI. And I'm going, yeah, great, wonderful. Developers of it. Other companies are going to be coming and developing things too. Now, so you look at it and go, How, and, and where does this sound familiar to anybody out there? And this is not a prediction about the future, by the way. This is not. But you remember when people were moaning and going, Oh, stocks are selling. They were selling for in the in the tech crash for $100 for every dollar of earnings. That was a 100 to 1 PE ratio. Who was crazy enough to buy those? And I said, there were a lot of people crazy enough to buy those. Thankfully for me, I had spent the late 90s studying under you know, several academics and they said, don't do this. And, you know, I moved away from it. And, and thankfully, you know, thankfully for a lot of reasons, because uh, that would have been horrible. It, and it was horrible for a lot of people because when the tech bubble burst, you know, tech stocks went down like 80%. 80%. Your million-dollar account is now $200,000. Congratulations. And there were a lot of people. I mean, a friend of mine uh, had a guy that we was working with, financial advisor, and he was working with this guy as a doctor. I, I got this all down. I got this all down. You know, you really, uh, I understand this investing thing, but you know, if you would help my daughter out, could you help my daughter out? Uh, yeah, sure. Okay. So he goes and helps the, the guy's daughter out. And then, you know, a few years later, 
The doc comes back and says, uh, and he's got a shaking hand, his hands shaking. Well, the guy is like a, a brain surgeon and he's his hands shaking and he had lost, I don't even remember how much of his money in his retirement account and how he can't do surgery anymore because his hand shakes. What do you do? I mean, do you just go, well, gee, maybe I can go be a greeter at Walmart? I, you know, they don't even have them anymore, do they? But, you know, you go, what on earth can you do when you mess up your retirement that badly? Become Dr. Strange. I don't think that'll even work. Oh, okay. Because you take some, <laughs> some creativity to come up with those shows, doesn't Invest it? Invest in Marvel. And, and whatever. <laughs> I don't know what else it takes to, to come up with those shows. But you look at that and go, whoa. That, and, and basically, this guy came back. And I, I was surprised you know, when my friend tells the story that the guy came back and said, you know, hey, could you help me out? And, and he's like, I can pray for you. And that's about all I can do. You can't do that with your investment portfolio and hope to somehow recover from it. You can't make you can't make mistakes like that. But this is what I'm seeing, and, and you know, I look at this and go, "Wow, this is a huge percentage of the biggest area of the market that is concentrated in this area, and people don't even know it. They're they're going, yeah, you know what? This is great. And I've seen people go and shift. You know, they'll they'll take a portfolio and and you know they're moving more money over to this area of the market because they're chasing the return of that area of the market because large U.S. companies after, you know, if you look back at 2009 on, it was a fairly decent run. Now, if you go back to the year 2000, and I like to use the year 2000 because that's when I opened the company, you know, you look at that area of the market and it's, uh, let's see, let's see, there are about 12 different asset classes that I would hold in a portfolio. Large, small, large value, small value, U.S., and then same thing in international, same thing in emerging markets. So there are about 12 asset categories that I want to hold in a portfolio. And if you look at large U.S. stocks, out of 12 asset categories, it's number eight in terms of return over that period of time. In other words, there are only a few asset categories that had a lower return when you look at a longer stretch of time for that asset category. And yet that's what people are going and moving and concentrating their assets in. And you know, you look at that and go, this is just this. And you look at large U.S. stocks and in, in just in general, the S&P in general, normally sells for about $2.60 for every dollar of, of assets of what we call book value. It's like a three fifty. Now, I'm not saying that it's ready to crash or no one is going to crash. I have no clue. But I just tell, I'm just telling you it is not prudent to go and over-concentrate assets there. And that's what people are doing. And you know what? You know, this is what I did in the early part of 2001, 2002. And, you know, this all this stuff was happening. I would say, you know, you need to go and you need to look at this. You need to look at this. And I'd, I'd have people say, Oh, you know, I know, yeah, someday I'll take a look at that. And then, you know, after the market did what it did, that's all of a sudden when people get, they start to get really vigilant and looking at this type of thing. So just uh, one thing to uh, keep in mind, don't ever, ever forget that diversification is incredibly important. And this is something I was telling Matt Murphy about. We were talking on, um, on the radio together. And he says, so what do you do? Because we were talking about cash. And we were talking about, matter of fact, I got something coming up where I'm going to be talking about wealthy people and cash. 
and how much they're holding in that. And you and I was talking about annuity sales. Like in 2022, there was a record jump in annuity sales, 23% jump in sales of a product that I go, they're just limited uses. It's not that you never use them, but they're not a great accumulation vehicle. And, you know, when you put money in, this is what I was telling Matt. I said, you know, you take money and you put it into an annuity. And what does the insurance company do? And he goes, uh, and I said, they invest it. What do they invest in? And they invest in, well, you know, we didn't get into this detail, but, you know, they'll invest in bonds. They'll invest in real estate. They'll have some stocks in there. They'll invest in some of the same things that you might invest in, albeit I wouldn't use real estate in a portfolio uh, because when I own stocks, I own lots of real estate. But, you know, side note. But here's what happens. They put it in there and people are going, well, I'm just worried that everything's going to fall apart. That's why I wanted the annuity. And that's, you know, Matt made that point. He says, well, they're big and strong and stable and you're hoping on the stability of the insurance company. And I said, that's it. That's what people get pulled in by, the stability of the insurance company. Why is the insurance company stable though? Because they're investing broadly diversified, you know, their bonds and stocks and really they're, they're owning all of these different areas. What are they? They're an intermediary between you and your money. But what they tend to do is they tend to overemphasize bonds because they've got to, which now what do you have? If you look back through history, what is one of the worst protectors against inflation, period, end of sentence? Bonds. And that's what they're concentrating on. Now, there can be some tax deferral with annuities, you know, used in a, in a portfolio, but, you know, like you have that in 401ks and IRAs and, and those types of things as well. But here's the issue is that you're ending up putting your money with this insurance company. And if these investment vehicles just fall apart and things go badly, will the insurance company survive the event? How can they? Because it's kind of like Silicon Valley Bank. Remember when people wanted their money back, what happened is people said, hey, I want my money back. And Silicon Valley Bank's going, well, we've got seven-year bonds here and they've gone down a lot. Uh, you know, they've gone down 15, 20% or whatever they went down, you know, whatever the bond portfolio went down. And uh, if you wait seven years, you can get your money back. Well, no, I, 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 can't, I want my money back now. <laughs> and that's basically what happens. You look at it and you go, the institution is only as strong as the end investment vehicles that they put your money in. And this is something that I think people miss over and over. When they're looking at guarantees, they think that, that things are going to be okay. Everything's great. You know, it's all wonderful. It's insurance cover. They say they can guarantee it for me. And you can't sue them, right? Well, you can't. Well, you, it, well that's, a, that's a complicated question. I did okay. a whole show all on right. that one time. I had an attorney. We talked about that. Mm. But here's the thing. What are you going to sue? What are you going to get? Because what they put in the fine print, Leviticus, good question. What do they put in the fine print on the bottom of every one of these contracts that you buy? The rate, it's this, your security and your guarantee is based on the financial stability of the insurance company is what it says. So, so they, they sink, have the we out. All sink. They have the out. They have the ah. out right there. Wow. It, it's based on that. And you say, well, you know, there's an insurance guarantee fund. Wait a minute. What are we talking about? All these insurance companies are all, and you're not, you're not even legally able to talk about that when you try to sell one of these products. But I, I find agents do it all the time. They're not supposed to do it. 
but I'm going to talk about it for a second because if you operate in a state, there's a state guarantee fund, so on, so on and so forth. You may hear this in sales presentations. But if these investment vehicles, because remember, they're an intermediary between you and where your money is ultimately invested. If these vehicles crash with no hope and everything falls apart, it's not just the insurance company that you invested with that has the problem because the other insurance companies are supposed to come in and bail this company out. So my point is this. I hope you get this, that when you invest, I don't have to have the insurance company between me and the investment. There may be some reasons to do that in some cases. I don't like using annuities as accumulation vehicles because of the fact that they are so, so conservative, number one, and such there's so much, so much that the material that they use in sales is so misleading from my experience. You know, if you look at it and you go, whoa, my goodness, I can't, but they, they have, you know, there, there are all these disclaimers down there, but who reads them is really the issue. But here's the thing is that when you invest, I would use typically more equities or more stocks to protect against inflation. And you don't typically, unless you're using a variable annuity and those things, you know, they have all kinds of problems on their own. I mean, it's so complicated. When I get into this stuff, I, I, I go, well, gosh, you know, I should give this caveat and I should, we could be here for 10 hours giving you all the caveats for all this stuff, but we just don't have time for that. But here, just keep this in mind that that is the issue and I want you to keep that in mind as an investor is you better know these kind of things otherwise you get taken down a rabbit hole that you may not escape from hey this is Paul Winkler hope you enjoyed today's edition of the investor coaching show you want to learn more about what we do go to our website paulwinkler.com you can watch some of the videos there and if you're not already a client you can set up a free initial consultation until next time, I'm Paul Winkler, reminding you that I believe that more educated investors are more confident investors, and confident investors are more successful investors. Have a great one. Advisory services offered through Paul Winkler, Inc., an SEC-registered investment advisor. The opinions voiced and information provided in this material are for general informational purposes only and not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine what investments are appropriate for you, please consult with a financial advisor. Paul Winkler, Inc. does not provide tax or legal advice. Please consult your tax or legal advisor regarding your particular situation.